both as a pastor and uh, just an everyday Christian like you, has anybody ever noticed that sometimes just to get to a church service like this, it's a fight? Anybody have a fight on the way to a church service like this? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, sometimes Saturdays are interesting at my house. Uh, if I'm preaching that Sunday, you know, it's just something about the Christian life is challenging. And I, I used to think that the longer I walk with the Lord, that the fight would get easier or it would get less. But I found that actually, <clears throat> until Jesus comes back, uh, we, have a, we have a struggle on our hands. We have a battle on our hands. Once you trust Christ, uh, this may disappoint some of you, but once you sign up to follow Christ, you actually enter into a different kind of conflict, don't you? And so if you're following along in the notes, here's what I want you to see this morning is the Christian life is a fight. Christian life is a fight. It's not a walk in the park. Christian life is a fight, but we can, here's the word, stand as we rely. We can stand as we rely. That word stand will be used several times in the passage we're looking at today. The message today is the armor of God as we make our way through Ephesians, this series in Christ. And um, we're going to look at chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. And uh, I want to invite you to turn there. And while you're turning to Ephesians 6, if you don't have a Bible, we say this every week, but there should be one hopefully nearby in the seat rack near you. If you want to pull it out and turn to page 819, that should get you right there on the page so we can look at it together. But I don't know if you've ever thought about where we've been and, and what the whole letter of Ephesians looks like from a bird's eye view. When I was in high school, a guy named Watchman Nee, a Chinese pastor, had written a book, real little book, called Sit, Walk, Stand. Anybody want to say that with me? Just try it. Sit, walk, stand. Now, it comes from this book, this letter to Ephesians. He says, look, these three words show up, especially in the English Standard Version, but it says in chapter 2, based on all the spiritual blessings God gave us in his grace through Christ, even though we deserve to be separated from God forever, if we've trusted in him, we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's, we've been given a new position, a new identity, something we never deserve, but it's true. We're seated with Christ. Sit. Second, in chapter 4, it starts out by saying, therefore, based on all he's done for you and all he's given to you, now put shoe leather to it. Begin to walk it out. Walk in that new identity. Don't walk in your old identity. Walk. Walk. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then it says, you know, walk out your, walk your calling. The last part is stand. We come to chapter 6 and says, now, as you're learning how to walk it out in your family relationships and work relationships and, and all that, you're going to find that there's a battle, and therefore you're going to need to stand. And you really can't stand unless you've first been seated with Christ. You're not going to be able to handle all the onslaughts unless you know who you are. So sit, walk, stand. We're going to talk about what does it look like to stand and not fall, not be defeated all the time. And in that fight, to be able to know the hope that he calls us to. I will say this this morning as I was meditating, I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It says, if anyone thinks they stand, take heed. If you think you stand, you think you're standing firm, take heed lest you fall. This calls for humility. This calls for a reminder that any one of us is vulnerable in this fight. 
And therefore, I don't know about you, but I need everything God has for me. I need his counsel. I need his wisdom. And chapter 6 offers us an incredible passage. And what we're going to see in this passage is that it does talk about the devil's schemes and how he wants to work against us. That word against is six times in my version in these verses. He wants to work against us, but God has given us the armor of God. And he also wants to teach us how to put it on. What does that mean? What does it look like to put on armor? Many of us have never been in the military or even seen all that. So how do we make that connection? So I want to pray. And then we're going to read the passage and work our way through it before we take communion. Okay? So Heavenly Father, what a privilege to be uh, with these friends and these guests today. Oh, we need you, Lord. We're living in a world where sometimes that fight's more obvious than others. Some of us have a fight going on inside. Some of us have fights going on around us. Would you please help us to stand in the fight? In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, if you would, uh, you'll notice there that verse 11 and verse 12 are listed in the gray box in the notes. So would you be ready to read that as soon as I read verse 10 and we'll make our way and we'll look at this passage, what it means, okay? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Notice it says, don't be strong in yourself. Be strong in the Lord. Don't be strong in your power, even though you have some. Be strong in his mighty power, his mighty power. Let's read verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. If you drop down to verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. He says it again. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And if we kept reading, verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. Next week, Steve's going to talk more about prayer, but today I want to talk to you about the devil's schemes, the armor of God, and how we put God's armor on. So if you look at these verses here, what I think you'll see, I want you to notice is that this brings up the subject of spiritual warfare. And I don't have time before communion to go into as much detail as probably it merits But to remind you that back in August, August 9th, you may want to write that date down in case you want to look that up on the website and the archives of the messages, Brian Schwerberg gave a fantastic, very helpful message on spiritual warfare. It was on Daniel 10, and it was August 9th, 2015. I highly recommend it. I reviewed it again this week, and it's very helpful as far as a big picture. Again, I don't know if you believe in a personal, supernatural evil being like the devil and his host. But the Bible refers to it here, and Jesus actually said on a number of occasions he referred to the devil or Satan. In fact, here's a passage, Luke 10, if you look at this. He says this to his disciples after they'd gotten back from one of their ministry trips that he'd sent them out on. 
And they told him, man, even the demons that you helped us give us authority over, they submitted to us. Here's what he said. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Keep your focus. Don't get all caught up with that. Rejoice that you have a position, that you have a, a place with God that cannot be shaken. So when you think about the devil, um, and we think about the fact that it lists here a whole government structure of fallen angels known as demons, that the principalities and powers and all, we've already seen that the devil's been mentioned in chapter 2, that he is the spirit who is at work in, the diso- in those who disobey God. That when people are living an entire habitual life of disobedience to God, the only spirit that's driving them is not God, but the evil one. So when Jesus talks about the devil, he talks about the devil as a personal spiritual being. And if you're following along, here's just a couple names that come up that Jesus uses for the devil. First of all, the devil. And the devil means, if you've never understood the meaning of that, means liar or deceiver. It also carries this idea of twisting something. And so a lie is what? It's a truth that's been twisted. A deceive is something that looks, looks good, but it's, but it's actually a trick. So he's a liar and deceiver. Jesus says that he is a liar and the father of lies. He speaks his native language whenever he lies. That's, that's what he's always been. He's a liar. Second thing is he says Satan. And whenever you hear Jesus refer to Satan, uh, that idea is that he is the accuser or prosecutor if you're following along. He's an accuser. Uh, Revelation 12.10 tells us that he is the accuser of God's people. That means he's always looking for what we're doing wrong. He's always trying to point out and try and, and get us, you know, sideways with God or get us to be in trouble with God. He's, he's you know, a tattletale, yes, but he also wants to, like, stick it in our face, an accuser. So that idea is helpful to me, but notice the next thing there is that uh, he's got a scheme. It says the, the devil's schemes. Do you see that there in that first gray box? You may even want to circle it. What's a scheme? Sometimes we think that it's just uh, like a spontaneous something that he concocts all, all of a sudden in the last minute. But this is actually, uh, it's, if you're following along, you can see that it's a devious strategy or method. Uh, it's a carefully thought out, laid out plan or strategy. And um, so he has certain methods. Some of us think that Satan is always doing new things, but actually he's doing the same things over and over in creative ways with each of us. And he tends to use a lot of the same strategies. Now, I could talk to you a lot about the different methods. One of the things that he is most interested in is dividing. He would love to divide our church. He would love to divide your family. He would love to divide you from God. He loves dividing. He loves pitting people against each other. Some of the hate that's going on, he's the author of that. He tries to get us to think the worst of other people. He tries to get us to think the worst of things. He's a divider. He's also a destroyer, Jesus says. So a lot of times you'll see that, again, even good things get destroyed because he's so envious, he's so jealous that he can't create anything, that all he wants to do is ruin things. But he mainly is known as a liar. That's what he traffics in. And I want to talk to you about two lies that he primarily uses a lot. First, if you're following along, he tempts in order to accuse us. He tempts in order to accuse us. 
So what this means is, is that on one hand, he tries to make sin look like no big deal. He treats it lightly. He goes, you know what? Everybody's doing that. I know God said not to do that, but you know, you can always ask for forgiveness. It's not, you know, really seriously. He's, he's not going to carry all kinds of stuff. So he lies that way, tries to tempt us. Or he'll say, have you seen this? I think God's holding out on you. you this would really make you happy. And again, it's very, very, very compelling sometimes the way he lies that way. But then what happens is, is that once we cave into that, if we succumb to that, guess what he's doing on the backside? Oh, he'll never forgive you. How could you possibly do that? You call yourself a Christian? There's no way he would ever forgive that. And on and on and on it goes. And as a way, he has us on our back and we're looking up at the sky going, what hit me? And so it's not that we're not responsible, but these are some of the ways that he's done this. Even in the garden, Genesis 3.1, you've seen this before probably, but it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, a couple thoughts there. Notice he's questioning. Notice that he's, he's kind of just, he's questioning Adam and Eve. And then the second thing he's doing is he's totally taking what God said and twisting it. That's not what God said. That's a terrible quote. God said, you may eat from any of the trees in the garden, except one, because I care about you. But instead, what does he say? You can't eat from any of them. What's going on here? If you're following along in the notes, what I hope you'll see is that Satan uses questions in our minds to shake us. Satan uses questions in our minds to shake us. And again, the idea here is that ultimately his goal is to get us to distrust God. His goal, if he can, is to get us to feel sorry for ourselves and feel like God's jipping us or that God doesn't really care about us like he does, like Satan does. And so he used these things. And I'm telling you at times, that is so easy to fall in that trap Ultimately, he's going to say, you know, the reason why you can't eat from that one tree is because God knows that if you do, your life's going to actually get better. Is that true? Did their life get better? Oh, my goodness, what a lie. On the other side of that was hell to pay. So he not only lied about that, but he also, he questioned God's character. Friends, so many of the temptations and so are either a question of God's character or our character. When he tempts us, he's questioning us about God's character. When he accuses us, he's questioning our character and how we could ever be like that. And again, it's just both of those can really knock you out. Now, what I want you to see, friends, is that unless you and I learn how to discern and see what his schemes are, we'll be extra vulnerable. And so what God wants to teach us is how to be aware of those schemes. And so, for instance, when you do have a sense of guilt, what do you do? Is all guilt bad? No. Guilt is actually a warning that you're in danger. But some guilt is false guilt, and some guilt you can just like get, he tries to put our conscience in overdrive where we're driven by guilt rather than by God. So what do we do? Friends, here's the thing you need to know. When Satan's whispering to you across the ticker of your mind, when he's trying to put lies in your mind, when he's trying to put those kind of things in your, lo- your mind, you need to know that the Holy Spirit's going to talk to you completely differently than the evil one's going to talk to you. The, the evil one's going to say, because you did that, 
God will never accept you. Or he'll say, you know, I don't know if God could possibly accept you. Put all kinds of doubt. And he'll, he'll actually try and create it where you don't turn to God. His whole goal is to divide us, to turn us away from God. But the Holy Spirit will always say, because God's accepted you, why do you want to keep doing that? The very one that loves you the most, you, don't you trust him? He's going to help you, so therefore, don't keep doing this. It's destroying your life. You're already accepted because you can never lose him accepting you. Now live differently. Now live out of a spirit of gladness and grace and, and gratefulness and trust. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, it's always, again, it's not that he has us take sin lightly like the evil one tries to do. He doesn't take sin lightly, but he also wants us to take God seriously. And what the evil one does in accusation is he wants us to take our sin more heavily than God. He wants us to be totally overwhelmed. Am I like losing anybody here? Does this make sense? So when you're beginning to sense, am I having conviction from the Holy Spirit or am I also hearing condemnation from the evil one? I want you to be able to sort that out because one gives you hope and the other one makes you want to quit. And that's what God wants for us is hope. So he says, look, that's the devil's schemes, but I want you to know that I've given you armor. Now, some of us, you know, are getting, you know, I know some of you are getting jazzed about Star Wars coming up, and uh, they were all these different outfits, and I know some kids think they're really cool. But, you know, this equipment, these resources to go into battle, what are they about? And here's the question. Why does he start talking about the armor of God? One, because it's a battle, struggle. Two, I think when he's writing this letter, remember where he's writing from? From prison. Who's he chained to? A Roman soldier, a guard. And I think as he thinks about how to apply the Christian life, he's already told us to put off and put on like new clothes, but now he says, now, for this battle, I want to get real specific. I want you to put on what you already have. Notice he says righteousness, truth, peace, faith. He says, you already have been given these things in the Lord, but now I want you to put them on. Look at Ephesians 3, 13 through 17 in the message paraphrase. I find this helpful. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war. Oh, that's, sorry, that's 2 Corinthians 10. Here we go. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. Learn how to use them is what he's saying. You'll need them throughout your life. God's word is an indispensable weapon. <clears throat> so now, let me just talk to you about that, the armor of God. First, notice the military image is of a soldier laying down his life and obeys the commander. A soldier lays life down and obeys the commander. <clears throat> and this idea is this. What a privilege it is to now belong to the commander who laid his life down for me. And Paul says, I'm trying to think of the best way I can tell you that in this battle, this isn't a time to play around. This isn't a time to say, I think I'll play at Christianity. I'll be a Sunday morning only follower of Christ. He goes, no, no, no. He's called you to be a soldier. He's called you, and soldiers don't say, well, what am I doing this afternoon? I, I think I'll go, you know, I think I agree with the commander this time, but I don't agree with the commander that time. No, this is about being someone who surrendered to God. And he's saying, I watch the focus of these soldiers, and I listen to some of their exploits and learn how they use this armor. 
I understand that Christian life's a lot more like that than a walk in the park or a Sunday-only relationship with God. So just know that military image, even if it turns you off at first, know that it's, it's God's ordained a way of telling us we need something for the battle. The armor of God, if you're following along, what is it? It's the benefits and resources we have, have, already have, not will have, have in Christ. So we've been talking about those. We're adopted. We're chosen. We have the Holy Spirit living in our life. We have the fellowship of other believers, all these different gifts that he's given us, these benefits, these resources. And maybe you've heard about them. Maybe you've read about them. Maybe even once in a while you use them. But he's saying now in the Christian life, if they're going to really make a difference in your life, you can't just have them. You have to apply them. You have to use them in your life. So he says, that's kind of like what happens if a Roman soldier has all the equipment on the ground, but he never puts it on. It's of no use to him. So what are you doing? Are you just leaving it in your Bible or are you applying it to your life? So notice this. The, uh, it, it, he gives two different ideas. There are really two sets of three. If you're following along, stand firm with the belt buckled, the breastplate, sorry, I misspelled the word, breastplate in place and feet fitted. So you and I can stand firm when we have the belt buckled, the breastplate in place, and the feet fitted with these kinds of shoes we're going to talk about. Third, the last thing here is the other three, is take up the shield, helmet, and sword to defeat the devil. You not only need the belt, the breastplate, and the shoes, but you also need the shield, the helmet, and the sword. So what are those? If you turn your notes uh, over to the back there, what I want you to see is that there are six pieces of armor that he lists here. And uh, again, this, this drawing of the Roman soldier, this rendering, I just want to start in the middle, in the order that, you know, I, I drew it in the order from top to bottom, but I want to start with the third one down, the belt of, if you're following along, truth. Belt of truth. He starts with that one. He says, belt of truth. Some of your old translations say girdle. My mom had a girdle. And uh, this is very, very close to your private parts, friends. And the belt here is the same kind of thing. It was something that was worn. Why? Well, think about this. What did people wear in those days? They wore togas, robes, free flowing. We've seen things like that. So uh, you imagine going into a battle like that, where that's all, like, you get all caught and twisted in that. Some of, you, some of you have pajamas like that, and you know it gets all twisted and stuff like that. You can't move freely unless you what? You tuck it in. You got to be able to tuck all that in. And so they use that belt. And that belt, you think about this, even when some of us, you know, buckle our belts in the morning, when we say buckle up, what are we saying? Get ready. This is the way I prepare myself. It's got to be the very first thing that we put on. It's the very first thing the Roman soldiers put on. So what does it mean to put the belt of truth on? We're going to notice that the first and the last of these six have to do with the word of God. Jesus says, your word is truth. He said, I am the truth. But unless you put that on in your life, you're never going to benefit from it. And so when he says to put that on, the belt of truth, I want to ask you a question. Have you come to the place where you believe that the Bible is the only authoritative word upon which you can base your life? If you don't believe that, then all the stuff this says about who you are is up for grabs. 
But if you believe that God knows exactly what he's talking about and you've come to a place where you said, Lord, like a soldier, I submit myself to your authority and your commands and your word in my life, and I'm going to let it be the belt of truth of which everything else flows out of. See, if you don't have the authority of God's word, then you won't understand the breastplate of righteousness. You won't understand the shield of faith. None of those things will make as much sense. It'll always be a confusing thing. That's why, again, friends, we want to make sure we always start every Sunday. What does the Bible say? What does God say? If that's not built into your life, if that's not your knee-jerk reaction in every decision, if that's not what you come back to again and again and again, you don't have the belt of truth on. And you, don't, you, you got all kinds of stuff untucked in your life that's going to get in the way. The second thing, though, I want you to see is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Now, this, again, picture two metal pieces on the front and back. What's that covering? It's covering your heart and your guts, right? And so why was that so important? Why did he say righteousness? Because when the evil one comes at you, what does he usually go after if he's trying to make you lose your assurance? Whether you're righteous enough, right? Anybody here tried to be righteous enough? On any given day, he's got me. Because some days I'm more righteous than others, right? If it's about my righteousness, I'm dead. But it's not. The Bible tells us that in Christ, we have a righteousness that is not our own. And it's his righteousness that gives us, it protects our heart, it protects our guts. And therefore, you got to have it on. But some of us regularly think that the Christian life is about me working out my righteousness and presenting it to God. That's not Christianity, friends. That's religion. Christianity is different than any other religion. It's God in Christ working out his righteousness through Christ perfectly and presenting it to us so that we can be accepted. Hallelujah. And unless you have that breastplate of righteousness on, you're really in trouble when the swords start to swing and the arrows start to fly. The third thing here is notice is the shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. Shoes fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace there at the bottom. Here's what I want you to see. Do you see those cleats down there? After the time of Alexander the Great, which was just before the time of Jesus, shoes were made differently. Alexander the Great didn't conquer the world by accident. He understood that part of the battle was the shoes. And here's what he understood. He understood that on one hand, you got to have traction. So they started putting hobnails in the bottom of shoes so that you could stand. Even if it was muddy or slippery, you could stand. Second thing is it needed to be durable because the enemy would often put sharp objects in fields in order to go right through normal sandals and paralyze people or at least cripple them. The third thing that needed to happen was is that it needed to be light. Doesn't this sound like stuff that Nike and Under Armour are trying to figure out right now too? See, the point is, is they understand that if you have those kind of shoes, you can move. There's a nimbleness. There's a readiness that you can go into life with. And the Bible is saying that guess where we get those? from the gospel of peace. Many people are looking for peace. Billy Graham wrote a book called Peace with God. And unless you and I have peace with God, we'll never have the peace of God. But in the gospel, God says on my side, even though I was innocent and you were guilty, I have made a way for you now to have peace with God through the life of Jesus Christ on your behalf 
Therefore, when you're in a battle, you can be nimble. You can be ready because you know you have an assurance that cannot be shaken, just like the breastplate of righteousness. You can move with a certain kind of confidence that comes because things are right. I was once talking to a lady who has, her husband had left her and it was completely unjust and hard to, com- he, didn't, he didn't explain why or anything. And I was talking to her one day and I said, how are you doing? She said, it's really hard. But she said, God took care of my biggest problem when he gave his life for me. I'm right with God. Therefore, I can know the peace of God. Man, praise God. The fourth thing I want you to see is the shield of faith. The shield of faith. Notice that uh, the shield of faith here could also mean faithfulness. Some of us think that the way we you know, fight when all the fire arrows are coming our way is we hold up our faith, and that's true. Those are the moments we've got to trust in God. But is our faith in our faith, or is our faith in the faithfulness of God? See, that's the shield, friends. It's the faithfulness of God, no matter what, that gives me the ability to fight off those arrows, not my faith in my faith. And therefore, that's a neat thing. Number five, notice the helmet of salvation. What does it cover? It covers our mind, it covers our head, it covers our brain, the whole operational center. Salvation is not only salvation, we've been, we, we've been saved. If we're a Christian, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. If we're a Christian, we're being saved, present tense, from the power of sin. And the good news is, 1 Thessalonians 5 really picks up on this, the hope of salvation. If we're a Christian, we are being, will be saved from the presence of sin. I can't wait. Isn't that great? We have something to look forward to. We have a future. The last thing is the sword of the spirit. And this is the only offensive weapon that's listed. How did Jesus use this offensive weapon when the evil one was trying to absolutely pin him against the wall? How did he fight his way back? He says, if you are the son of God. See that question? I didn't even know that was up for debate when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by the devil. If you are the son of God, he said, turn these stones to bread. And he says, it is written. The word of God, you're a liar. The word of God is what I depend on. It's true. It's a sword in my hand, and Satan cannot stand against those lies. What does this tell us, friends? It means that the word of God has to have an important part of our life from beginning to end. So how do we put on the armor? As you think about preparing for communion, how do we do this? Well, first, the way we put it on is we preach to yourself Preach to yourself what you have in Christ. The tense here means to put on and keep putting on. It doesn't mean just once. Some of us go, well, I won that battle. Take heed lest you fall. There are other battles to come. Learn how to put it on. Learn how to become more and more a part of you. Learn how to just appreciate everything you have in Christ. All these benefits and privileges. Don't just know about them. They're more than words. Put them into your life. So what does it mean? It means to take it into your life. It means to think out what the ramifications of that are. It means to meditate on it. It means to think about. When you think about Paul going through the sufferings that he did, he says, I reckon, that's an interesting word, I reckon that these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's coming. What he's saying is, I'm thinking this out. I'm putting the armor on. This stuff's tough right now. I'm in a fight. But I reckon, I think through what God has said, and I'm taking it into my heart, and I'm applying it. I have a future that will make this look like child's play. But it doesn't feel like child's play. 
It gives me a perspective to be able to think that through. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. When you're worrying, look at the lilies of the field, how God takes care of them. Think it through. Apply it. Won't he take care of you? When Paul and Silas were in the prison, the Philippian jailer was in charge of them, and they had had their backs beaten with rods for casting a demon out of a fortune-telling girl. What happened? It says around midnight, as they were in the stocks, they began to sing and pray. What were they doing? They were putting on the armor. They were remembering what they have in Christ and what that could do in their life if they would trust him and apply it. So when I was younger, I spent time with Jack Hayford out in California, a pastor out in California, and he told one story I've never forgotten. He said, my son was in wrestling for several years, and the coach always said, you guys need steak, you need steak, you need steak, so you can really wrestle well. So he says, what if my son had misinterpreted that or misapplied it, and the very next wrestling match, he walked out onto the mat with a steak in each hand, a T-bone in each hand, and goes, I'm ready for you. He said, that's crazy. He said, that's what a lot of us do as Christians. We walk into a battle and we go, I got my Bible. But we've never chewed on it. We've never really thought about it deeply. We've never really let it become part of us. The idea is you chew on that steak so it becomes part of your strength, part of your fiber. Friends, this is why we ask you to be in God's word every day. I've tried going for several days without the word of God being in my life. I've noticed that I can easily swing away from God. I can easily get cocky. I can easily get proud. I need God's word. I need God's word. It is an indispensable weapon in my life. Is it yours? Because you cannot put the armor on without the word of God. You can't. I can't either. Notice that it means to wear it now before the evil day comes. To wear it now before the evil day comes so you'll stand. In other words, in the middle of this battle, he's not saying, you know, hey, just keep walking through life, and if all the arrows start raining down on you and the swords go, say, excuse me, I'm going to, you know, change into something more appropriate. He says, you can't do that in the middle of battle. You've got to think ahead. You've got to understand that there's some stuff that may be coming your way. Now is the day to say, I'm going to learn how to put the armor on. I may not be as good at it as I want to be yet, but I can learn this stuff. I can actually apply this. I know that I may not be like some person that's walked with the Lord and been doing this longer, but I can, I can do it with them. One thing I didn't say, by the way, about the shield of faith, maybe I did, is that you lock in with others. There were hinges on the side. So it reminds us that you're in this with other Christians. And this idea is that it would be a flank. So it would be like a door, a wall, and they could go forward, but only together. But as American Christians, we think the Christian life is just an individual deal. It's not. Friends, when we sing together, is there not a power that God uses to strengthen our souls? Why do we need to gather in small groups and large groups and also feed on God's word individually? We need all those. We need all those to do the battle. So let me just say a couple things before we take communion. Here's the last question. Lord, in this fight, what are you wanting? I left out the word me, if you can write that in. Lord, in this fight, what are you wanting me to know or do? In this fight that I'm in, what are you saying to me? So I try to put myself in your shoes. Maybe you walked in here today, and as we've been worshiping God, or maybe this past week, God's been saying to you, you don't have the armor. You don't know me. You've never trusted in me. 
And I'm asking you to humble yourself and trust in me and give your life to me. And I will give you the armor and I will give you hope and I will help you in the fight like you've not been able to know. Maybe today he's saying, today is the day of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord and he will gloriously, gladly save you as he saved so many of us that did not deserve that. Some of you have stopped fighting. Perhaps you've just said, I'm caving in. The rest of the world's doing it. I'm tired. Some of you are still fighting, but you're hanging on by a thread. And God is saying to you, I see you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my own right hand. Don't quit. But to all of us, he's saying, put on the armor. Don't do life. Take heed lest you fall. So here's just a couple ways I've learned to put the armor on. When I've disappointed God and I've sinned against him, he calls me to humble myself as quick as I can. And to humble myself and say, what you say is right and what I did was wrong. Please forgive me and apply what Christ did, his righteousness on my behalf so that my relationship, not my, excuse me, my fellowship, not my relationship, my fellowship can be restored with you. That's been helpful to me at times. Because, man, I don't know about you, but on any, any given week, how many times I need to repent and confess to God that I'm thankful for his grace, that my relationship cannot be taken away. Second thing, when I was in college, I got into a situation where I got so discouraged. The fiery arrows of the evil one were so effective on me, I could barely, I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't feel God. It was in that time that I remember I took several scriptures like Lamentations 3, 19 through 22, 23, and I wrote them and put them on my mirror. And I carried different parts of the scripture. I tried to memorize different hymns and different words, uh, songs. And I would just quote them over and over again. And there was nothing. It was mechanical at first. But I remember one specifically where Jeremiah is saying, my soul is filled with bitterness and gall. All my splendor is gone. And then he says this, but this I call to mind. He's putting on the armor. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast Love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. I held on to that one many times. The faithfulness of God became a shield for me. The last one I just want to mention is that some of you, you've gotten at odds with people and you have bitterness in your heart, I've had it too. What do you do? The scripture says we have a weapon, and that's blessing instead of cursing the people we're bitter at. Is it easy? No. But if we'll put it on, if we'll begin to say, God, I want you to give me a heart instead of demonizing them, to want their well-being, to love them like you love them, to want you to see their, your blessing fall on their head. And as you begin to pray that, do you know what opens up, friends? spiritual things begin to happen in the invisible realm. All of a sudden, God's grace begins to powerfully flow, and the battle begins to turn when you and I begin to put on armor like that. And that's what he wants us to do. So as we come to the communion table, I don't know if I've totally exhausted you, but here's what I want to remind you. 1 Corinthians 11 is often what we refer to before we take communion. 
And I was reading it this morning. I won't read the whole passage, but here's what it says. Two or three things I want to point out. First, it says that Jesus wants us to take this often, as often as you eat it or drink it. Why did he want us to do it often? What does he know about us? He knows that we forget and that we need reminders to put on the armor that we already have. So he says at communion, no matter how your week's gone or how the battle's been going, remember me. Remember me. Get your focus back on me. Second thing, he says, this bread, this cup is for you. I did it for you. How does that feel to have someone love you like that? The third thing is it says that every time you and I eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim, we declare, we preach, we remind ourselves, we think through that the death of Christ was enough. And it conquered more than we can imagine. It opened up doors like crazy between us and God. So we need communion to remember. And we need communion to be a time where we humble ourselves freshly and depend on the Lord and make right whatever he wants us to make right. Let's use this time to remember those things and put on the armor. And when the trays come your way, there'll be a double cup of bread and juice. If you decide to take it, please hold on to it till we can all take it together a little bit later. If you're wondering whether you should take it, please know that this is not our table. If you're from a different church, but you've put your trust in Christ, this is for you. If you haven't done that yet, do you realize you could take that step today like we talked about earlier? But if you're not ready to do that yet, then all I would ask is, Let it pass and think about what is God saying to you? What is he drawing you to? So we pray, Lord, now, as we do what you commanded us to do, let this be a time where we put on the armor and walk in a fresh assurance that what you offer us and what you accomplish for us is mighty, even mightier than all of our doubts or our sin. In Jesus' name.